you have a Bible with you this morning, and I hope that you do, open it to the book of 1 Thessalonians, and we will be looking at four short verses, 9 through 12 of the fourth chapter. Anyone who's been around humans long knows that we are an imperfect people. We make errors and mistakes all the time. And this is not even related to being sinful. It's not just sinful mistakes. They're just mistakes that we make. We see this not only in our own lives, but even in the lives of others. When we know, for instance, how we've responded to COVID, I know that uh, we have things and we've learned things here at the, as the elders of Crossway about how we might handle things differently in the future. Certainly state and federal government have been learning about that kind of stuff. And certainly if, if this kind of thing happens again in the future, hopefully we will be more prepared and able to handle the, the difficulties that we face uh, through learning by our imperfection. The interesting thing about being imperfect is that people are not only prone to make mistakes, but also prone to point out your mistakes to you, and then to give you a great number of recommendations as to how you can fix them. And what's best is that they have to have absolutely no expertise in the area that they are giving you advice in. Uh, I know this because I have done this to many people, uh, offering advice and counsel on things that I have no idea uh, how to help them. I think often of my wife in the kitchen, and I, I offer her pieces of advice, and they are typically fairly unhelpful. It must be a great thing, then, to receive a word from an expert in a particular field that you are working in and to know that he has nothing bad to say about what you're doing, to only give you applause and praise and to exhort you only to continue on in that work. That is exactly what Paul tells the Thessalonians this morning. Last week he had somewhat spicy words to, to speak to them about the way that they were handling themselves in the culture, but today he has only positive things to say to them, only encouraging them to do all the more so. As we go to that word this morning, I would ask specifically the people of Crossway, as we think about these words this morning, as we think about the applications that we might bring to them, specifically for us, ask yourself about the people of Crossway and about yourself in particular. What would Paul say to us in these matters? What would Paul say to you particularly in these matters? As we've been meeting during our, our prayer meetings and, and working through the book of Revelation, we've gone through chapter 2 and chapter 3, where Jesus is writing letters himself to the churches. What kind of letter would Jesus write to us about these matters? Would we be like the church of Laodicea, where there wasn't much positive to be spoken of? Would we be like the church of Philadelphia, where there was only positives to be spoken of? As we go to these verses, think about how Jesus might approach us. Think about how Paul might write to us about the way in which we love one another. Let us read from God's holy word, beginning in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may, so that you may walk properly before outsiders, and be dependent on no one. This is the word of our God. 
as Paul writes to the Thessalonians, I want to emphasize first the importance of love, the importance of love. Paul writes, now concerning this brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. That word brotherly, we need to understand, is referring to far more than brothers. He's going to mention brothers many times throughout this passage. That word is going to apply equally to the sisters as well. It's not just a love for a brother as a man, but it is a love for people in the same family. It's a sibling type of love. And because it's a sibling type of love between brothers and sisters in the Lord, it is not particularly in this case, a love for sort of the universal brotherhood of man, that we are all brothers because we've all descended from Adam in some way. As true as that might be, that's not what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about love for Christians, those who confess and profess faith in Christ with one another. It is specifically for people who are bonded together by their faith in Christ. Now, as I tell my children, we have a lot of rabbits in our backyard. If you catch one of them, you can keep one of them. We are going to go on a small little rabbit chase this morning. So one of the things that I think are important uh, that kind of is difficult to bring up in Scripture, and I I just I noticed this this morning, and I, I just kind of couldn't get away from mentioning it, is this idea of how they know who is in and who is out. That he's writing them saying, about this love that you have for one another in the family of God, somehow the Thessalonians know who are believers and who aren't. And certainly for Crossways, we consider membership to be so important. I've had people come to me before and say, listen, nowhere in Scripture does the Lord tell me I need to join a church in order to be saved. And I would give a hearty amen to that. that. That is nowhere to be found in Scripture. You don't need to join a church. But yet we still think that membership is important. Let me tell you just briefly why that is. The way in which the New Testament goes about its business has to be, because of the culture, much different than the way we would go about our business. There's two things in particular that I think make membership important for us that wouldn't have had it be important for them. First, when they showed up for worship, they showed up for worship. They didn't know or understand or have a conception much for this sort of personalized worship that you can do in your house that many people who profess Christ have today. They don't think that you can just walk through the hills and the valleys and worship God as you were. Even the Bible upholds that we need to gather together, right? Do not neglect gathering together. There was always a gathering. There was always a publicness to the way in which they worshiped together. So they were identified with one another that way. And secondly, not only were they identified that way, but they were persecuted. As we've gone through 1 Thessalonians, you've seen the afflictions and the persecutions that they've had to go through. Paul writes about it all the time. Paul himself suffered these things. There weren't just casual believers. People didn't come along simply because they were interested. They might be identified. They might not. You were either all in or you weren't in at all. So because of these two things, it was very easy for the early church to know who were believers and who weren't. They were the people who gathered with you, who risked their lives to do so. That's why Paul doesn't need to talk about membership. Membership wasn't something that he needed to talk about because they knew intrinsically who was in and who was out. We suffer from both of these things. We suffer from privatized worship, and we also suffer from the fact that, well, we don't have persecution, which is a weird way to use the word suffer, but I've already used it that way, so we're just going to move on. And so because of that, we, 
we have to come up with a way to be able to tell who are we to show brotherly love to? How are we supposed to know who's a Christian? How do you go into a 7-Eleven and determine who's a Christian and who's not? The way we do that is through membership. So that we can understand that this person, by all means and accounting, is a Christian. Paul understands the importance of love between these brothers and sisters. He goes on to tell them that they have been taught by God to love one another. Indeed, it is God who has instructed them to love one another. This is not just a, an aspect of one person of the Trinity, but all of the Trinity works in this. He's already mentioned last week that if they deny this teaching on sexual morality, they're not just disregarding Paul, they're not just disregarding a church, but they're disregarding God, specifically God who has given his Holy Spirit to you. The Holy Spirit that is given to these people in order to lead them to greater fidelity to Christ and in that greater love to one another. As we read through the end of John, chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17, the two major aspects of those chapters are the gift of the Holy Spirit and the love that they are to have for one another. Both of them working for that. The Holy Spirit giving us the desire to keep the commands of God, which are no less than love for one another. But they've been taught by God in his commandments. Even as Jesus says, and he quotes from Isaiah 54, 13, all of the children shall be taught by the Lord. We know that God has spoken to us. He has given us the commandment to love one another. Jesus himself said, when asked what is the greatest commandment in the law, Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all of the law and the prophets. In other words, if you wanted to sum up the thousand or so pages of the Old Testament, you only needed two commandments to do that. You were to love God with every fiber of your being, and you were to treat your neighbor as yourself, as you yourself would want to be treated. Jesus not only knows what these commandments are, but he is our example in living them out. He is the one who fulfills love of both God and neighbor by dying on a cross. Imagine what Christ has done. Christ loves the will of the Father so much that being sent to the earth, he allows himself to be subjected to people who deserve his wrath, but instead of coming in wrath against them, he receives their wrath so that they might receive salvation wholly because, partly, he loves them, but also because he wants to do the will of the Father. He thinks that the Father is worthy of his life and worthy of laying down his life for. That is a picture of loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And this is a picture that apparently the Thessalonians have understood. They've been taught by God to follow that example of Christ. And notice the humility here of doctrine. And again, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but it's worth mentioning again. We, we think that doctrine is so terribly important, and we're not wrong in that. We will teach great and grand doctrines of the church. We will do that without apology. We do that even though at times it's difficult, and at times it's, it's mind-crunching. But we do that because it helps us love better. See, Doctrine isn't an end in itself. Doctrine is just a means to an end. We ought to love good doctrine 
Because good doctrine leads us to love better. Why do we teach on election? Why do we teach about grace? Why do we tell people that your faith is a matter of Christ's gift to you? That Christ's gift to you is eternal life and salvation outside of anything that you have done on your own. So that there is no boasting. He has laid down his life to buy you salvation. He gives you faith to acquire that salvation so that he might pour out his grace and his love upon you. For even while you were sinners, he died for you. And he elected you from before the foundation of the world. Why do we proclaim those things? It is not because those things are important in and of themselves. It is because those things fuel our fire to love Jesus all the more, knowing that it is nothing in us that could have gained that salvation, but it is holy and only because of what Jesus has done. These things ought to make us love him all the more. And in humbling us, make us love our neighbor more. Because it's not because we're wise that we have been saved. It's not because we are of more noble character that we have been saved. It is only because of Christ's grace. So we don't look down on people who sin in the world. We know that there, by the grace of God, could go I. So doctrine is to press us forward in love because love is the end of all that we do. All the doctrine that we teach, all the things that we do in this life ought to end in love. And love is not an emotion or a sentiment or a doctrine or a confession. Listen to what he says in verse 10. For that is indeed what you are doing. You are practicing this love. We don't know what they were doing for the brothers throughout Macedonia. We have absolutely no idea. And people are actually kind of confused by this because it's only been a couple of months. And Macedonia is not a small place. But somehow these Thessalonians were demonstrating their love in very practical ways for all of the people who call on the name of the Lord in all of Macedonia. Far from being simply a sentiment and a proclamation, the end result of our faith has to be love. James says this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It says you see a brother or sister and they have needs. They have real needs. These aren't imagined needs. They, they don't have appropriate clothing for the weather. They, they lack food. You can see their ribs. And all you can give to them is sentiment. All you can give to them is doctrine. All you can give to them is confession. He says, your faith is dead. You don't know the one you believe in because God doesn't leave people like that. And you're not being faithful to the one who has called you. You have no faith in the real, true, and living God. And you're certainly not being faithful to him. Your faith is dead on arrival. Paul says the same thing. You have to love. All of our faith, all of our doctrine always ends in love. The importance of love cannot be overstated for us. Our culture is kind of built off of this. You can mess up in our world in so many different ways, but the minute now it seems like more than ever you get labeled as somebody who hates, you get labeled as a bigot, you get labeled as a blank-phobic person, whatever you want to plop into that blank. As soon as that happens, there seems to be no redemption for you. Now, 
it's interesting because the idea of our culture being built off of love is a distinctly Christian thing. It's distinctly Christian. You don't have to have a culture that builds their ethics solely around love. It can be a desire to serve the state. It can be around honor and shame. But we have done it out of love precisely because, well, Christianity was around. Christianity was sort of woven into the fabric. The problem is when you get your doctrine wrong, when the map is wrong, your idea of love goes wonky, it goes wicked, it gets twisted and curled. And so how do we make sure that ours doesn't? How do we make sure that we don't go off the rails? We talked about the importance of love, and secondly, we're going to talk about the identity of love. The question becomes, what does this kind of love look like? The first thing it looks like is that it presses ever forward. Paul says here at the end of verse 10, brothers, I want you to do this more and more. Brothers and sisters, you've got to press on. Excel even more in these things. The Thessalonians knew of the necessity of love. They knew of the importance of love. But Paul doesn't want them for a second to rest on their laurels, to be able to think that simply because of things that have happened in the past, their future is settled. You can say, hey, I'm a loving person, and here's all of the things that I've done in the past month to prove that I'm a loving person. And Paul will say, that's great, but now is now. How do you love now? How will you excel in the future? You cannot be static even if you are doing well. There is no glass ceiling on love. There is no cap on the amount of love that you can have and you can grow in and show to people. So Paul looks at them and says, you are doing well. I have no reason to write to you, but still I'm going to call on you and press you. Friends, go further. Do more. And he tells them three ways that they can do this. First, he presses them to live a quiet life. The word quiet here is used in a number of different contexts. It can Simply be people shutting their mouths and not speaking. So in Luke 14, 4, Jesus brought a sick man forward on a Sabbath and said, I don't know, guys, what should I do? Should I heal him or not? Is it lawful or not? But they remained silent. The Pharisees and the lawyers remained silent. They remained quiet. This is a bad use of quiet. The idea here is not only did they not speak, but they were unwilling to press Jesus on these things. They didn't want to build up the tension. They didn't want to cause a fight. The idea of being quiet is both of those things. It's not just keeping your mouth shut. It's also keeping calm and lowering the tension. Here it was wrong. It can also mean to the absence of burden, that, that you are resting because you're not taking a burden upon yourself. This is the idea in Luke 23, 56 where we read that on the Sabbath they rested, or on the Sabbath they remained quiet. It didn't mean in this case that they didn't talk. Certainly they talked at some point in time on the Sabbath. But what it does mean is that they rested. They, they didn't have burdens upon themselves. And it's important that they use this because the way in which the Sabbath commandment is actually put forward has much greater emphasis on resting, not just for you, but for everyone around you. Listen to Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, 
your male servant or female servant, your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. This command is not just for you. The, the idea of resting is not just that you get to rest and say, okay, listen, I'm not supposed to do any work today, so woman, get to the kitchen and make me a meal, right? It, God says, that's not how it works. You don't get to talk to your female and male slaves and say, listen, we're not supposed to do it, but you guys are lesser than us, you go do it. Or even to simply somebody who is a sojourner or to your donkey. It's a rest for everybody. It's a ceasing of burden for everybody. The focus seems to be living a life that doesn't burden other people. And the point here is not that Christians fade into the background of civil society and aren't seen. They're, they're not to be invisible. And what's more, this doesn't mean that you are not to present the difficult truth of the gospel to people. But you are to live in such a way that you don't become a burden to other people if you can. We ought to remind ourselves that this isn't just an economic thing. It's a social thing. Paul has much to say about working and economics and the way that we are to support ourselves in this passage, but this is not just economic. The word aspire here can also mean love the honor of. So you are to love the honor of a quiet life. That the people of this world ought to look at the way in which you live your life, knowing that you are not burdening them any, and give you honor for it. This is the same way that 1 Peter 2 talks about this. He says, this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. That when people want to blame Christians for things, when they want to blame Christians for upending the world, when they want to blame Christians for causing trouble and difficulty, that you ought to live your life in such a way that their ignorance shuts them up. Because they've got nothing to blame you for. That's what Peter is getting at, and that's what Paul is getting at. Live a quiet life that gives no burdens to anyone. The idea here is really the fact that the world's going to be offended by you. But their offense should always be the Jesus that they see in us. It should always be the gospel, not our conduct. We must not burden people with undue burdens. Burden them with the truth of the gospel, certainly. With issues of truth and justice, certainly. But we should strive not to burden them with useless controversies that have no bearing on the gospel. 1 Timothy 6, Paul writes this, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a mean to gain. Friends, if you know a teacher who is like that, who quarrels over non-essential things, who stirs up controversies over non-essential things, Paul says you ought to run from them because they are not agreeing with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. You want to get fired up about things of the gospel? You go right ahead. You fight for them. You must fight for the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. But people who cause dissension and people who cause controversy over things that are not essential, these people are not living a quiet life. Paul presses them to live a quiet life. And he does this by saying two other things. First, 
Be busy with your own thing, things. Mind your own business. Keep your nose out of other people's affairs. You are not to busy yourself with other people's business. This is best sum up in one word, gossip. You cannot gossip. Gossip has no bearing on truth. You can gossip and say all the true things that you want to. What gossip means is that you are putting yourself into other people's business where you have no right to be in their business. That's what gossip is. You can't support the things that you say simply by saying, well, you know that it's true. It doesn't matter if it's true. Is it your business to spread that stuff? And if it's not, then you ought to be quiet about it. Be busy with your own things. And don't think that because you're a member of this church that gives you carte blanche right to stick your nose into other people's affairs in this church. It doesn't give you that right either. But I will say this, that the minute that you sign that covenant, the minute that you agree to be a member of this church, that is a big old welcome mat for people to knock on your door and ask if they can come in. You ought to be allowed and you ought to be welcoming to people to know the things that go on in your life. But that is a vast difference between making sure that you get in the door by using any means possible. There can be no forced entry. You need to knock and make sure that people are inviting you into their lives with a kind and hospitable invitation, which we should extend. Part of this is just the way in which we read scripture. Man, we always read, I always, I have found that I sometimes read scripture for other people. One of the times that this came home to me the most was when I was thinking through, uh, and I probably had just had a fight with my father when this happened, and I was thinking through the commandment, you shall honor your mother and your father. And I thought, yes, my kids need to honor me. That is not for me to put on my kids. That command is for me to honor my father and mother. And there's nothing wrong with teaching our kids that this is what they ought to do. But you have to understand that that is for you first. It's always for you first. Take the log out of your own eye, and only then can you see to take the speck out of your brother's. Mind your own business. We are to welcome one another into our lives, to seek to carry burdens, to seek prayer from others, and to seek help when needed. But we cannot force such involvement on others. You cannot manufacture trust or love that way. Lastly, Paul says that you are to work with your hands. If anybody could say something like this, it was Paul. Back in verse 9 of chapter 2, he writes, You remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Paul worked with his hands to relieve them of a burden. This is exactly what we've been talking about. We can't shy away about the goodness of work. We often quip that work is a four-letter word. And yeah, work can be horrible at times. Many of you work jobs that you don't love. Many of you do things that you grumble about and complain about, and not even in a bad way. They're worthy of grumbling and complaining about. But work is indeed a good thing. And what's more, working a job, specifically one that you don't necessarily like, is an incredibly loving act. It's a loving act. Because we should strive in whatever areas we work in, especially if it's an area where we make money, to understand that the more money we make, 
the less we have to rely on other people to sustain our needs. And yes, that can at times become selfish, but it also at times becomes simply an act of love, especially within Christian brotherhood. John Stott recognized, and I think wisely so, that while supporting those who can't support themselves is indeed the purpose and one of the great needs of the church, that is a loving and a kind act. Stott says, it is also an expression of love to support ourselves so as not need to be supported by others. You might work a job which you think has no spiritual benefit to you at all. But in working that job, even if it's for meager wages, if you lessen the amount of support that the church needs to give to you so that it can pour support on other people, you are acting in love toward your fellow brothers and sisters. Work with your own hands. And again, we would like to say that balance is, is needed. We have to have balance in these things. We say work with your hands if you are able. Paul is not filling in the other side of this, but we know that Paul wants people to be taken care of in the church. We can be so liberal that we're not telling people to get back to work, but we can also be so tight-fisted that we're not willing to help to give and sacrifice for others and their needs. However, our love forces us to think about working, thinking about helping others' needs. And this is where we see love's identity. Love is never truly worried about itself. Love is always worried about the other person. Love is always worried about thinking, how can I help somebody else? It is always outward focused. Friends, I would tell you to consider that as you work this week. It might seem meaningless. It might seem tiresome. It might seem empty to you, but it is an act of love. Work so that others don't need to take care of you. Work so that others can be taken care of. Be grateful to God that you can contribute in that way. Thirdly, Paul comes to the implications of love. What happens when we act this way? What happens when we love one another in these ways? I think that there's a great deal of purpose in verse 12. This is the reason why you are to do these things, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. I was reminded of Matthew 5 when Jesus says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Paul says, you love one another because it impacts those who are outside. Notice what he says. He says, walk properly before outsiders. The properly there must, must be before God but it must also be before outsiders. The outsiders must be able to recognize this as proper. And he says, and therefore you'll be dependent on no one. Let's take that second thing first before we get too far into it. Dependent on no one is not necessarily the best way to put it. It means so that no one will be in need, so that no one will have any needs. That for those who work hard, they loosen up other monies so that people who do have needs can have those needs met. As we read in the early church in the book of Acts, they used a combination of all of their monies so that no one who existed in that church, as poor as it might be, would have any need. That is precisely the kind of thing that we should uphold here at Crossway so that none of our members would be lacking in need that, or would be lacking and have need, that we are supplying what they need for them to have a life 
to have food, to have clothing and shelter. We can press the idea of working too far, but we can also not press it enough. Paul is trying to get them to understand that this is the goal so that no one has need. If the church is too lazy, if people are not working, then there will always be people in need. We can also leave people in need by insisting that they do all the work themselves. But what is it about walking properly before outsiders? Does Paul think that he's going to get the persecutions to end? Does Paul honestly think that all of the afflictions that have come upon this church in Thessalonica are going to disappear if they just walk in the right manner before the outside world? Obviously not. The point isn't that walking properly before these are going to stop the persecution. But if we can put it this way, it is so that the persecution happens for the right reasons. And I don't mean that the persecutors have good reasons to persecute the church. I mean that they're persecuting the church because they dislike the gospel or because they're offended by the gospel and not because they're simply offended by the Thessalonians. Friends, if the world is angry with you, that's fine. If their fury and their fire is pointed at you, that's fine. If their fury and their fire actually hit their target and persecution comes upon us, that is fine. But let it be pointed at the gospel in us and not in some sort of indecency or idiocy on our part. That is what Paul wants. And when he talks about walking properly, he obviously means before God, but this is also in some way, shape, or form culturally conditioned that the outside world would look at them and say this is proper as well. That the Greek culture that they were in would look at the way in which they walked and they would think, huh, that is a good way to live. To walk properly for us seems to be something that is culturally defined in some way. It's not just walking according to the gospel, but it is walking according to the gospel in the culture in which you live. And it takes a deep understanding both of the culture in which you live and of the gospel to be able to do that. We're prone to fight against the culture when we don't need to. When we can gladly partner with it and say, and go along with it and use that, that walking side by side to help promote the gospel. Sometimes we fight against the culture when it's needless. Sometimes we capitulate to it when we shouldn't. It takes a good deal of wisdom to know how. When we travel in our car, uh, when we go over to Midland or drive around, oftentimes my kids, when they're with Brie alone, they listen to books. And sometimes when I get in the car with my whole family, I like to listen to music and they'll ask, say, hey, can we listen to one of our stories, whatever they happen to be listening to. And, uh, last month, one of the things that they were listening to, and I got to listen to quite a bit of it off and on, was this biography of Amy Carmichael. So for those of you who don't know Amy Carmichael, she was a missionary who went to Japan and famously to India uh, when Britain was a superpower. And the thing was, when she went to these places, the missionaries who came from Britain at that time were very clear about the way that they were to handle themselves. They lived in Western homes, they had Western education. They dressed like Brits. They talked like Brits. They ate like Brits. They were at no point in time to make it apparent at all 
that British culture was on equal plane or even lesser than Japanese culture or Indian culture or wherever they were. They were to always hold themselves above it. So, as Carmichael is trying to reach the women of Japan, and then later, famously, the people of India, specifically the women in India, she finds that they want nothing to do with her. They're very cold. She does something that's really simple. And quite frankly, amazing that the British missionaries who knew the gospel and apparently didn't understand culture very well or how the gospel interacts with culture were unwilling or didn't know what to do. She put on a kimono. And she put on a sari. Traditional dress of the women. And then all of a sudden, these women wanted to interact with her. They were willing to talk with her. They thought, oh, well, you know, if you're going to come and be a part of us, then we can open up to you. She was viewed not as simply an outsider, but as an outsider who wanted to get to know them and to partner with them and to come alongside them. She was able to read the culture and realize that the way people dress, and that's not terribly important. Wearing a kimono doesn't injure the gospel. Wearing a sari doesn't injure the gospel. Yet, at the same time, when confronted with Indian practices about women, about the way in which women and orphans were handled, the way in which women and orphans were talked about, she was more than willing to stand up to the culture because the gospel was an issue there. To demean them, women and orphans, is to demean God. It is to demean scripture. It is to demean the church. She knew this. That's a wonderful explanation of what Paul is, is asking for. Walk in a manner that the outside world will see proper, but at the same time, uphold the gospel in every way you can. I mean, after all, this is precisely what Jesus came and did. And he spanned a larger gap in becoming man than you and I will ever need to in going to a culture, whether it's our culture or any other culture on earth. He bridged this infinite gap between creature and creator, between the everlasting and the finite, between the transcendent and the mortal, so that he would simply lay down his life, which he had just taken up. He would lay it down to save those who would believe, that he would provide himself as a sacrifice for those who only deserved hell and wrath. He gave us instead eternal life. He was able to, to take on our own infirmities. He was able to take on our own sin. He was able to do this. And are we to think that we cannot come alongside the culture in such a way as to walk alongside it so that we can better present the gospel to it, so that we can better think about how we can walk properly before them and properly before God at the same time? We can find ways to do this. We can find ways to, as Paul says, become as they are so that we might win some. It is not easy. We don't do it because we love the culture. We don't do it because we love to ingratiate ourselves with sin the way that the culture does. But we do it because we love Christ and we want to see him glorified in others' lives and we do it because we love our neighbors and we want the goodness of Jesus to come to them as well. Friends, 
it is my prayer that we all do this better and better. It's my prayer that I understand and learn and work on doing this better and better. It's my prayer that you do as well. So that while we might excel in love now, that we would do so all the more, pressing forward to give God glory in everything. Let us pray. Father, help us to be the kind of people who understand well the culture that we live in and seek ways to love our neighbor without defiling ourselves in that culture. We often will fail, either by not going far enough or by going too far. Keep us on the straight and narrow. Yet let us be kind and compassionate, hardworking, filled with love and joy. We are not doing this, Father, to earn our salvation, but because Christ has indeed won our salvation for us. It is by his merit that we pray these things. So we ask that you might do this for his glory as well as our good. Amen.